Today I'm with Ben Flynn, Army Reserve Medic and current SA Police Officer. Ben's deployed to the Solomons and on Border Protection within Australia. Welcome to Care Under Fire, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Emma. Starting at the beginning, tell me about your younger years and how did you go at school? Yeah, going into early life, um, I actually moved around quite a bit as a young kid because of my dad um, did a lot of work with um, uh, the fast food or the um, the food manufacturing business. So when I was about four years old, we moved to Victoria and basically I bounced before I moved back to SA when I was 15, I think I went through about six or seven schools. Yeah, it was uh, just kind of chopping and changing. So I didn't have exactly what you'd call a stable, uh, stable life in terms of um, for a structure for a young kid. Um, I wasn't able to make many friends before I was being moved off to the next school. Um, but once uh, I hit about 15, um, Dad managed to get a job back in the Barossa in SA. So he managed to find a place at Upper Sturt, which they're still there to this day. And I moved over shortly after with him. And um, once I came over to SA, I, I lived predominantly with my grandma, who was still um, at uh, the original house that I first lived in. So I went to Cornerstone College. Um, and while I was doing that, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do post-school. So I um, decided to do some medical stuff because that always interested me. So I ended up in, going into St. John Ambulance Service for about five years. Yeah, so um, doing event support and that kind of stuff with them? Yeah, so do things like um, some of the like tour down under, um, the Adelaide show, that sort of stuff. Um, one of my one of my first ever experiences was a bit full on. Um, I was partnered with a, a senior member, and this was one of my first ever uh, shifts that I had. And the, the, the what they train you is uh, the basic first aid level. And um, this lady comes running up to us as we're setting up, um, and she's saying that her husband, who was about seven years old, was uh, was potentially having a heart attack. And so we've basically gone into game mode and grabbed all we can, rushed over to him, and luckily uh, he just had a, a vasovagal uh, from not eating that day. So we managed to give him a banana and managed to get him get him all right. Um, before he was taken to hospital for just a, a checkup, but that was a very interesting uh, start to my journey in the medical field. So, what was the driver to join the Army Reserve? Was that to be a medic, or was there another motivation? I think it was a combination of factors because um, I'd always been interested in that medical field, and I'd been kind of pushed by my grandma um, to actually do something in the medical profession and. Um, so while I was, um, when I'd finished school, I was actually doing some promotion work, um, with, uh, basically going to the, uh, the big sort of events and one of our clientele was actually defense force recruiting. And we, while we were doing that, we were attached with quite a few different reserve and full-time members. And the more I spoke to them about what it was like actually in defense, um, uh, I guess I kind of got uh, hoisted on my own petard there. Um, 
of recruiting, I ended up recruiting myself. And um, so I decided to join the dotted line on the 24th of August 2009 and then went to Kapuka in January 2010. How was that experience for you? Um, as a 20-year-old, it was uh, it was very interesting. Um, I wouldn't say that I was coddled as a as a child. I mean, I was yelled at and a lot of things, but it was it was very different, um, as you'd know, with your experience going through. Um, there was lots of yelling. There was lots of hurry up, wait out, um, and standing around, and uh, other good things. But like looking back at it, I I loved every minute of it, and um, I actually considered whilst I was there and within the first few years of actually going full-time whilst I was there. So how do you think the Army Reserve went at turning someone with pretty, you know, basic medical background with some first aid skills into a combat medical attendant? How did you find those initial training courses and did they really prep you for what was to come? Yeah, definitely. And when... Post uh, Kapuka and marching into 9 uh, CSSB at Warradale, um, I probably had one of the best mentors that I could ever have. Um, and I'll give her a quick shout out, um, Sergeant Mel Foll, or as she was known previously, Mel Chandler. Um, she was probably one of the, as you'd know, there's a difference between a, a leader and a boss. And she is what I'd classify as a, a true leader she she definitely inspired people to go above and beyond what they thought they were capable of and when I first put in my my name down for doing a um, support task she was more than happy to um, basically get me through all of the stuff coach me through all the the lessons because the the first support task um, actually only required a first aid and not a uh, not a combat first aider. So I hadn't actually even done any of the the medical courses before I was thrown into my first uh, support task two weeks after getting into the unit. Um, My first course was at uh, RAF Base Williamstown uh, for my first medical course, which was 16 days, uh, known as uh, Mod 1 Alpha. And that was run by two sergeants um both were one was a ex full-time the other one was a a veteran new south wales paramedic and there was also a corporal there and for the mod one alpha it went well beyond what a normal first aid does we learned how to do cannulation our four main protocol drugs um, and your basic care and collection of casualties um, prior to bringing them into the into the resus tent or into a, a main hospital and the the more I the more I did with that the more I I it really drove into me that this is where I I definitely belonged because I, I absolutely loved every every minute of it yeah so just on that sort of scope mm-hmm. of practice wise, you're so you're cannulating, giving IV fluids, you're giving what morph, and you're covering a lot of trauma training and T triple C stuff all in that two weeks. Um, so ours was only the it was similar to the combat first aiders, so we were only mm-hmm. able to give the four main protocol drugs being 
morphine, naloxone, uh, methoxyfluorine, and adrenaline. Um, but yeah. the the good part about the um, the course managers and the trainers, because they had that background in the the medical field with paramedics and all of that, they actually showed us a lot more of um, what can be done. Obviously, uh, the main thing that they drove into us was remain within your scope of practice because obviously you deviate too much to the left and right. Um, not only can you be uh, liable to things, but you could potentially do more harm than actually treating the patient properly. Yeah. So, um, now the within sixteen days, yeah, we learnt that we worked with the the RAF fireys out there, so we were actually extricating patients out of a, a wrecked car and i mean for for 16 days they crammed a hell of a lot of training into it and i mean it as i said i think because it was so new and so interesting that's why i just i retained so much information and i just i as soon as i got back i i couldn't wait to go out on more exercises and um more training scenarios and doing all the other cool stuff that uh, I got to do out uh, while I was on my mob one. Yeah. And you raise a good point. You've really got to know what you don't know. You've got to know your own limitations and be willing to push yourself back in a safe way. <laughs> You've mm. got to keep your patients safe. So, yeah. yeah. So was there a mod two after that, another part of that training continuum? Yeah, so there was, um, there was mod two. Uh, it was actually broken into... Uh, when I first joined, it was broken into two categories. So the first one was sort of your RAP style um, training for the first one, and then the the mod um, two Bravo, which was supposed to be in a resus uh, tent clinical situation. However, School of Health um, at that time were reevaluating all the training and all the um, basically just trying to align the first aid medics uh, that were in the reserves along with some of the ARA medics um, because obviously there was a big big difference between the the ARES and the ARA due to um, obviously two 16 or three 16 day courses don't uh, really amalgamate into 18 months of training yeah exactly so um, so I got panelled for the first uh the, the mod two, however, that got chopped and changed and they decided to merge it into one big course. Um, it's still 16 days, but um, yeah, that was, it wasn't as exciting as the, the first mod, but it was still, it was still quite interesting to learn how to actually treat patients, not in such a, uh, a traumatic situation where you're first on scene but um, in a more clinical setting where a person comes into an RAP and they've got um, the, the minor issues where you can kind of do your... You can sit down and you can actually think clinically what's the issue, how can you help them, how can you prevent it from happening again or prevent future situations with this person. Yeah, absolutely, because trauma is still... Even in the military, sometimes a small percentage of the work you actually do. Mm. Yeah. So give us a run through of your first appointment to the Solomons in 2013. What was your role over there? Um, So I was uh, lucky enough to get on the last rotation um, to the Solomons, which was rotation 30 anode. 
uh, which was based out of Four Brigade in Victoria. Um, so the nominations went out and the criteria was they wanted a medic and they preferred um, a male because uh, I was going to be enrolled as a platoon medic with the Tongan Defence Force. So I, when I deployed, I was um, specifically attached and looking after about 48 Tongans, which was um, it was interesting learning the, the different culture there, um, but some of the, despite the fact they were six foot and 120 kilos, and that was 99% of them, um, they were some of the most genuine and friendly people you could ever meet. So they're out there doing some sort of peace pacification mm-hmm. work, and in the was that post-election at that time, or...? So a little background on what happened in the Solomons. They had that uh, civil unrest between um, the Malaitans and the Guadalcanals. Um, basically, two militia forces rose up um, due to the corruption and kind of a lot of other underhanded things, um, basically overthrew the government. So that's when the Solomon Islander Prime Minister reached out to Australia and basically a whole multinational Pacific um, organisation known as Ramsey jumped in and um, we spent a de- over a decade there actually trying to keep the peace and do everything mm-hmm. there. So as our last rotation, we were starting to wind down because we'd, um, we'd done all the relief work, we'd done the stabilisation and it was now into the, the mentoring and basically packing up and saying, all right, we've given you guys all the tools you need to do. This is your time to stand on your own two feet. Yeah. And then China. Here comes China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, well, I mean, to, to be fair, that yeah, it's the, the biggest issue was there was a lot, of, a lot of animosity going on in there because they, a lot of... It was actually starting to flare up a little bit as we're about to leave because obviously everyone knew that we were leaving and the locals and the government had kind of gotten used to us sorting out a lot of their problems. Um, So I remember one of of the guys who went out on a little field trip, um, a couple of the locals recognised the vehicle um, belonging to the military and they started throwing and hurling rocks at them. Um, as they were about to leave. So they had to quickly hightail back to, to GBR, which was the our base at the time. Um, it was a bit of a culture shock when we first, did, when we first got into um, the Solomons. I was hearing from a couple of the other guys saying that the, the Solomon Island Police Force, um, basically because we'd been there holding their hands, they were letting a lot of things still slide. As 200 metres from our base, um, we heard a story about a six-year-old girl that had been raped. And for me, like I was only 20 at the time, and um, this was obviously, obviously pre-kids. And that made me angry that nothing was getting done yeah. about it. They just kind of let it slide. And the response was, it's their problem to fix, which I'm like, fair enough, it's... You know, it's their their island, their culture. But the fact that nothing got done about it did not sit well with me. And, I mean, I wasn't alone, luckily. There was probably about maybe 
half a dozen to a dozen people that heard the story and they were just as outraged as I was. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Bloody awful. And then you're there, but it's not your role. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's a bit of a, a moral hit when you have to bear witness to that kind of information sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, that wasn't the only experience that I had in the Solomons that didn't sit well with me. But um, I did also have a, a lot of good experiences while I was in the Solomons deployed with the Tongans. So when we were out there, um, we did quite a bit of training. And as you know, going from, even though it was in summer, uh, when I did my pre-deployment training at Pakapanyal, um, then going to the tropics um, and going to about 100% humidity from um, maybe 10% humidity, it was, uh, it was quite hard training. But um, I spent about three weeks to nearly four weeks in the jungle um, when I was attached with the Tongans. And then I got, uh, once they did their rotation through the jungle, I ended up being posted to um, the CP that was out there and basically just being the platoon medic and looking after the other platoons as they would go through. And did you see any patients on that trip? Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, a bit of a funny one. Um, so on uh, pretty much the night before Anzac Day, um, we had the uh, Solomon Island Police Force come through and they do a little bit of the pomp training or the riot control training and they used our mess. And about 7pm, we started to see some patients uh, with gastro symptoms and in a tropical environment, um, gastro spreads like wildfire. So within 24 hours, we had 42 patients um, mm. from, because um, we in GBR, we didn't have um, just the, uh, the Tongans and the ADF. We also had a detachment of the New Zealanders, uh, just a section. And also we had um, uh, different police forces from, uh, AFP, uh, the Fijians, New Zealand, um, and obviously the attachment of the uh, another medical section, which was... Um, so they basically overwhelmed um, our initial response because we had only uh, myself and another medic and a nursing officer. So we, we grabbed all the, the CFAs that we had um, and we got cannulating. And it was actually a good experience for all the CFAs because they were wanting to, to learn how to cannulate. And lo and behold, 42 patients come through within 24 hours to learn how to cannulate. All dehydrated. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so um, as the joke was, we just called it Brown Thursday um, for, for that time because, yeah, we had to isolate um, uh, two of the itzes or the demountables um, to basically hold the patients and basically just let it run its course fun times <laughs> so you deployed again the following year on Resolute, doing the border protection stuff in 2014 yeah so um when i got back from solomon's i tried to do some study with nursing um and i found that coming back from a deployment and then going into civilian life where it's a little bit I guess slower and a bit different. I, I kind of struggled with that. 
and yeah. they were offering um, Operation Resolute, which is the, the border security posts. And I'd had a couple of friends that had already deployed up there and they said it was actually a pretty good, uh, pretty good gig. So um, for reserves, um, I'm not sure if it's the same for ARA, but when they... When you get back from a deployment, you basically have to have a decompression period of a minimum, I think it's of six to 12 months before you can try and put your name down for another deployment. So it was probably about the five month mark when the deployment was going to put in, but they uh, they seemed to waive it. And um, yeah, within five months of me coming back in country, I was uh, I was uh, nominated to go on up Resolute as the, the medic again. So working on a patrol boat? Or what um, so initially, that's where it got confusing. Initially, I was um, supposed to just be the, uh, the company medic looking after 144 other people, which was a massive jump from just looking after a section of, or a platoon of 38. Um, so initially, I was posted to... Uh, Berrima and working at the the medical centre at Larrakia with the the Navy medics and um, other medical personnel. However, I don't know the wisdom of the hierarchs, but somehow I ended up being assigned as uh, a company um, GD to work on um, one of the large boats being HMAS Perth. So I was still, I guess, employed in, in the medical side, but I was more as a, a boarding member um, attached with the with Op Resolute. Yep. And you guys come across uh, some asylum seekers in that trip as well, didn't you? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So while we were out um, at sea, we picked up um, a, it was about a, I think it was about a 50 or a 60 foot boat and there was 42 people and a dog uh, called Mustang on this boat. And um, for for looking at the boat and the amount of people that were on that boat, I mean, if you've seen the news where they had the all the refugees coming through, it was pretty much standing room only. And yeah. um, a lot of the a lot of the Sri Lankans that were coming through, um, you could definitely see there was quite a bit of desperation on them because um, I found out speaking with um, a few of them because they actually spoke English that their boat their engine was massively underpowered for um, the amount of people being on board but also the ocean currents because they at one point they were able to do I think about seven knots an hour but they had about a a six or seven knot um, tide that was going against them. So they basically, in a couple of days, they made absolutely no ground whatsoever and they had obviously Mm -hmm. diminishing supplies. And probably deliberately set up like that by people smugglers who really don't care about uh, these people that they're sending out to drift in the ocean, hoping that they'll get detected by our Navy and not really caring if they drown or whatever happens. It's a very brutal business yeah it it is and yeah what was that like i mean were they relieved to get off that boat yeah so basically uh, at the time um i forget which prime minister it was because yeah as you know um in recent climate it's been uh chop and change quite quickly but um 
yeah, basically we had a no, uh, no detention policy. We were basically turning the boats around. So we'd picked up the, the Sri Lankans, we processed them, um, and obviously looked after them for the time being. But basically we were kept in the dark for, um, for the interim, um, basically a comms blackout for, for about probably four or five days before um, I get told by my uh, section commander at the time who was uh, an AB um, uh, bosun, and he tells me that we're going to be attached to a customs vessel, ACV Triton. And basically what happened was at about 11 o'clock, we're jumping on a rib and we're doing a meet-up with a, a customs vessel, so basically jumping from one rib to another in very choppy water, which, I mean, not much not much scares me, but when you're wearing full body armour and you've got a uh, flotation device, I, I kind of questioned if the flotation device was going to actually keep me, keep me buoyant whilst I'm wearing about 15 kilos of bloody body armour and crap on me. So um, we jumped onto Triton and then for about three hours um, we were basically shuttling the 42 asylum seekers from HMAS Perth onto Triton and then processing them. Yeah, so they were then sent back on Triton? Yeah, so we... uh, So there was about four or five... So there was about five of us that uh, from... The, uh, from Op Resolute that jumped on to the customs vessel. And we... I thought we were potentially going to Christmas Island or something like that. Um, we weren't really told much. And I overheard from one of the customs guys saying that uh, we're actually heading back to Colombo, Sri Lanka, which um, I kind of knew a little bit about um, the history with the the Sri Lankans, um, particularly the the civil war going on between the Tamils and the government. And I kind of wondered if um, a few of them were potentially Tamils. I I never got it confirmed, but, I mean, that would explain why you would Mm. flee your country um, if you were being persecuted. So for me, it didn't... If it was true, it still didn't sit right with me that we were basically going to be handing these refugees back to back to Sri Lanka I mean obviously um, with the geopolitical climate um, but when it comes to like a humanitarian sort of side it's still it doesn't sit right with me that they uh, were potentially going back to who knows what exactly and I think I think that's what really made me a little bit concerned so you're basically between a bit of a, a rock and a hard place as to what you can and you can't do. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's got their own political opinion. Uh, but when you're the person there looking at that asylum seeker in the eye and they're asking you where they're going, I mm. imagine that would be pretty tough to uh, have to yeah. you know, be the bearer of that news. I mean, they they definitely suspected that they were probably going back, but... Um, yeah, you, obviously we couldn't tell them much until uh, they saw the the Sri Lankan naval vessel 100 metres away from us and 
um, we started shuttling them off and it was, yeah, I, as I said, it, despite that that happened pretty much nearly 10 years ago, it's something that I, I still think about, um, you know, you know, where are they? Are they okay? That sort of stuff. It just, yeah. Did you have any families on board or were they all sort of young males? Um, there was a mix and match. There was at least um, there was at least three families that I could tell that were pretty close knit. But I don't know if it's um, they were uh, the others were very close, like family ties, or whether it's a, a traumatic experience um, that they had all endured had actually brought them close together. Because um, when we were on the boat, you could uh, see them singing and um, doing some dancing, and it just it was nice to see, despite the fact that they were obviously not in the, the best best climate, they still had the human spirit to have a bit of hope and a bit of a yeah. bit of joy. Did you feel that th- that deployment sort of changed you a bit as a person or hardened you a little? Um, yeah, I, I definitely noticed um, when I got back... Um, or even even before um, I deployed on my second one, I definitely changed as a person. I was definitely a lot harder in terms of everything was kind of black and white. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I struggled to go to uni and integrate with what I call normal society, where people work their Monday to Friday, nine to five jobs. And when I was even doing the, the post-deployment medicals, I I definitely picked up on the screening and there was a lot of people that were experiencing you could say uh, there was definitely a bit of substance abuse mainly alcohol and tobacco um, but some people were starting to exhibit uh, signs of um, anxiety depression I even had um, uh, a person who'd been in uh, the ADF for for about 20 years and they broke down and started crying right in front of me and they started telling me about their their previous deployment to um to iraq and i was kind of in that a bit of that rock and a hard place because obviously um, i'm doing the medical side and need to not only keep the clinical composure but you also have that side of being a human and I knew that this person definitely needed help so it's as as I was going back to obviously remaining within your scope of practice but it doesn't change the fact that you are human and you you definitely feel feel emotions you feel happiness sadness you know yeah absolutely it's that's I guess why I got um so invested in um I guess the the side for the, the medical, like despite the fact we are medics, uh, mental health is still it can exhibit physiological symptoms as well. Did you get much mental health first aid training? Um, I'll be brutally honest, no. Um, I, and I mean that's a no fault to the the training establishment, anything like that. I think it's, and I, I mean that's why they do have the the site core um, who do train 
on the the psychological side, but I do think that there should definitely be a lot more medical uh, and mental health training. But obviously, when I went through uh, the training, things might have might be different now in terms of what uh, School of Health does, and obviously our knowledge now of um, mental health, particularly with PTSD and um, other kinds of um, mental health issues that we now are very well aware of um, post-Afghan and Iraq and uh, other conflicts that we've been exposed to in the last 20 years. Yeah, it's a good point you raise because as a combat first aider even or as a combat med attendant, a couple of weeks training, a couple of months really, and you're there responsible for the health and welfare of a group of people at sea, potentially remote from others. And, yeah, the mental health side is is really important. Yeah, I guess that for me, really, that that last deployment that I had solidified, um, as I said, I um, I was still very happy in the medical side. I guess the the issue that I had with being a, a first aider uh, a combat first aider was obviously the the limited scope of practice, and um, I kind of felt like I could actually do a lot more for my patients. And obviously, as a combat first aider, you're only limited to a very very select amount of um, your scope of practice. So I I tried to go back to uni after my second deployment to try and stick out the nursing and try and broaden my my scope of practice. However, I I still had the same issues um, adjusting basically back from deployment into uni again. And um, at one point, I actually um, I heard a, an eighteen year old whinge and bitch about um, how they basically couldn't go out um, on the weekend because she got stuck doing some group assignment and. I know it's something very minor, but I just, I absolutely snapped at her and it took me probably about a good couple of minutes to realize that I was shouting at this 18 year old um, and basically just a tear. I felt kind of like an instructor at Kapuka. I was just tearing her a new one and I didn't even realize until after it had already happened what I was doing. Mm. And I realized that I definitely needed to put my uh, my foot on the brake a little bit from defence and kind of just give myself some time to actually decompress and readjust to what normal society was. You're pretty young too, like, and hadn't really done adulthood without defence at that point. So it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a big adjustment. Yeah, you kind of get a bit institutionalised. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So then, of so. course, you just joined another institution, the police force. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That. I thought I'd had enough of um, being bounced around the country on support tasks and all of that. I thought, oh, I'll join something different. And the irony is it's exactly the same. It's just a different uniform. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I did join was it was, it was safe. I knew, the, I knew sim- uh, it had a lot of similarities being a para sort of military organization and yeah so i i enlisted in in sapol um 
so while I was going through the um, the initial recruit training at or cadet training at Fort Largs, defence came calling again, and um, they did the old dangle the carrot. Um, they were offering another deployment to me. Um, at this time was Iraq, and that was doing the mentoring. Yeah. And they wanted NCOs there who could do that. And it, I, I really struggled to say no to that because obviously I had so much fun and enjoyment on my deployments. Um, and I thought, you know, it's a new exciting thing. It's, um, you know, I'm potentially going to a conflict zone, which, you know, hindsight now is very naive of me, um, particularly now that I've, I've had plenty of friends that have, come back from those uh, environments and some of them are, are definitely not who they used to be. And then within about probably two months of my um, cadet training, they offered me another another um, uh, very cool gig, which was working on USS Mercy, which was the hospital ship um, through the Pacific. And that was going to only be a nine-week um, nine rotation. But... Um, Unfortunately, I had to say no to that because obviously I was going down a, a very different career path. Yeah, and you don't apply for the police and get partway through and be able to chop and change. You've got to finish your yeah. training. Yeah. I think the the hardest thing that I had from from obviously doing the uh, the, the cadet training was um, two of the guys that I deployed with um, whilst on op resolutes. Um, and one of them was actually a, uh, a SAPOL member themselves. Um, within three months of each other, um, sadly, took their own lives. Um, both of them were actually uh, emergency services members. Um, one did it uh, two days after Christmas, and the other one did it, um, yeah, three months later. And the, I think that hit me the hardest. Not only was... Uh, not only were they two members that um, were part of my rotation, but as a, as a medic, I guess you could call it almost survivor's guilt. I, I felt uh, I felt ins insanely guilty that these two had done this, and I should have seen it. I should have seen it coming, and I know now, thinking about it from a rational point of mind, that the deployment was already done. Something may have triggered after the deployment and sometimes people don't tell you everything about you know their lives but it's it's one thing that's always stuck with me particularly with the mental health side is that's why I guess I'm a little bit more hyper vigilant with people's emotions and mental health and making sure that they get get as much help as they can because I I don't want to ever I guess go through that pain of losing two very close people in such a short amount of time and as you know it's it's one thing to work with someone but when you're on a deployment you live with someone you eat with them you you sleep in you know the same accommodation you build up you build up more than just a a, a friendship um it's it i guess for people that are not military or anything like that, it's quite hard to explain the the bond that you share with people yeah absolutely you know them better than some members of your own family at times so mm. absolutely bloody tragic that that was the outcome for those fellas so 
Um, but yeah, once um, once I finished my um, my cadet training, it was I got posted out to to Port Adelaide, and basically, yeah, I I kept doing my medic training for as much as I could. However, I had to um, basically pull the pin on on defence um, just before the the pandemic because uh, doing shift work it's actually quite hard to commit to those Tuesday night and weekend sort of um, rotations it just you can you can tell them that yeah I'll be in uh, on these dates but doesn't always sit well with the the chain of command um, being basically an unreliable person obviously um, the police are first on scene at a lot of violent crime potentially if you have an active shooter incident or something like that as well how did you feel your trauma care training with the police was now that you have sort of a military comparison did it equip you and others in the force do you think adequately to uh, treat each other treat yourself treat an offender um they we get the, the the normal 12 month first aid training which is uh, conducted by a mm-hmm. uh, a paramedic and i mean they give the what they call the bare minimum or the you know the standard um training which i guess for me uh coming from a, a military background and all the extra stuff that i now know i i definitely find it's not adequate but for someone that's, uh, I guess, knows how to apply a bandage properly and make sure that someone air, someone's airway is clear. I mean, those those small, simple things of the primary survey it can can potentially save someone's life. But as you said, um, when you're first on scene to some of some of the jobs that you you get exposed to, um, I definitely say my my medical and my my military experience prior has definitely prepared me for or made me able to adapt and cope with some fairly high stressful situations that uh, mm-hmm. I've been exposed to. Do you guys carry tourniquets or hemostatic gauze, uh, those sort of TCCC type life-saving interventions for massive hemorrhage? Well, the the irony is um, the the guys that do carry the tourniquets are all ex defence or they're reservists. Um, yes, it's not an issued thing. It's just um, no, it's good not. A, it's not an issued thing. Yeah, their own experience. Yeah, and I mean it's it's kind of funny that um, I look at my my patrol bag because um, everyone's got uh, their books for like, doing. Um, uh, basically issuing out fines and seizing yeah. cars and uh, property and all that kind of stuff. I've got maybe two books in there and the rest is basically a, um, a modified med kit. I've got uh, the SAM seal, I've got a SAM splint, I've got um, quick clot, I've got um, tourniquets, Israeli bandages. Yeah. Um, basically, it's, a, it's a pretty much a fully decked out med kit um, that I've got in there because... The, the med kits that we got in the cars are your typical, you know, cuts and things that you get uh, in a first aid kit at home. They're not, they're not designed for, for stabbings, lacerations, burns, 
and things like that. Yeah, I think we've still got a way to go to push that knowledge outside of lessons learned in defence and into the community mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah, and sort of having a interagency response that's really I mean that's really appropriate to to save lives, yeah. So what's the best part of being in the police? Clearly not the shift work, but <laughs> Is it that camaraderie that you enjoy? Is it the job? I guess each day's uh, it's not exactly the same. I mean, the, the irony is we you get tasked to a job and you look at the uh, the address come up and the the person calling and you're just like, oh, here we go again. What what is it this time? But then you get some quite dynamic jobs where, um. Yeah, uh, I've had a couple um, people that are running in the middle of the street that are under the influence of methamphetamine with knives, poles, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, it is, I mean, most normal sane people would be like, that's terrifying. But uh, I guess the training that we we get exposed to, not in just police, but also defence, you just like, you just shrug it off and you're just like, yeah, it's just a normal Tuesday. Mm. Um, But... Yeah, I mean, there are some pretty savage parts of um, of this job as well. Um, and the the one thing I definitely learned from defence and from um, one of my previous sergeants was when you're making sure that um, you're, you're finished for the day, don't wear your uniform home, take it off, put it in your bag and change into your civilian clothes because it's it obviously wasn't so much the the whole security thing but he said it was more of a it's a mental health way of you going I'm done for the day I am not a combat first aider I'm not a police officer I'm not a nurse or you know whatever your day job is you are you um on your drive home the job doesn't owe you anything else you've you've done everything you can today and for me that's really stuck well to for me adjusting to um to normal life as i said there's been some brutal jobs um uh i was first on scene um at a uh at a fire job where um uh basically three people had been deliberately set alight by this one person. Um, and I think for me, the, the biggest issue that I had from that was, even though I did get changed out of my clothes, was I couldn't get the, the smell of the, the smoke and um, the, the charred flesh out of my nose. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that I'd, I'd done everything I could. I think it's really tough for emergency services particularly in that in the military generally there's at least some time between trauma and returning to Australia. Mm. You're away. But you're literally um, going to a job like that and then you're home taking your kid to soccer Mm. or doing whatever in the afternoon. So very difficult to live in community and not drive past a house where you think, oh, yeah, that was where that suicide happened or another one where you you attended some other traumatic event so that decompression at the end of the day uh, I guess is one little way to 
to make that transition yeah. back to home life. But yeah, incredibly tough to do that effectively. Yeah, and the, I think the the good part with being in in Saipol as well is I had you do have some really good uh, supervisors out there that check in on you and make sure that everything's all good. So there is still that level of camaraderie. I'd have to say, though, I think the camaraderie with defence is definitely a lot tighter, and I'm not sure if that's speaking from so much a deployment side, but I think because you're able to disengage from your civilian life, put on the, the green machine uniform, and you're... You know, you're running around playing, playing, you know, doctor or army medic, and you're still you're still able to talk about some of your civilian stuff, but you you still feel you feel detached almost, and you're able to decompress properly with um, a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff. And I mean, I've I've been pretty lucky that um, a lot of the guys that I still keep in contact with in the reserves, um, they're first responders as well, being fireys or um ambos and we talk about the jobs that we go to in i guess a bit of a a tongue-in-cheek and dark humor sort of stuff but as as i think in defense as well it's it's one way of actually coping with the stresses of the job yeah absolutely you need to be able to laugh at stuff otherwise you'd cry all the time Mm, yeah exactly (laughs) yeah ben Thanks for your time coming on the podcast. I guess you had a bit of imposter syndrome there. (laughs) You're a bit sort of wondering whether your story warranted telling in this forum. And I'd say it absolutely does, you know, uh, and we want to cover the full spectrum of healthcare from first aid through to neurosurgery and austere environments. But it's also just demonstrates how varied deployments are you know even within australia people think some people have the misconception i suppose that uh operations like resolute are you know pretty benign and that but all the guys fishing uh, dead bodies out of the ocean Mm. and having to uh, look asylum seekers in the face and turn them around would probably feel quite differently so it's really important to get that out there and and share it and and just acknowledge that tough times for different people and uh, bloody tragic that those guys you deployed with ended their Mm. lives and, you know, potentially didn't get the support they needed. So, yeah, thank you for coming on and highlighting that important role the Reserve um, Combat Med Attendant does. And thank you for your service. Mm. Thanks very much for having me today, Emma.